together, you and I are about to embark on a non-linear road trip through popular culture. A subjective history tour chronicling the histories and legacies of the coolest movies and television shows ever made. This season, it's David Zucker, Jim Abrams, and Jerry Zucker's landmark 1980 parody, Airplane. From the movies and comedians that paved the way for the funniest movie in recorded history, to its contemporaries and the filmmakers it inspired, we're bouncing backwards and forwards through time for a salute to comedy on film and the fine cinematic art of orchestrated anarchy. So come along with me, your wonky yet affable host Ryan Luis Rodriguez, for season two of The Coolness Chronicles, The Shirley Chronicles. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh... Well, we found you. Hey, I guess they're right. Senior citizens, although slow and dangerous behind the wheel, can still serve a purpose. I'll be right back. Don't you go dying on me! Last week, we returned to the Zucker Abrams and Zucker Well with three solo ventures. Mafia, First Night, and Basketball. And this week, we're going deep into some phenomenally popular acolytes of the Church of Zaz, Peter and Bobby Fairley, the Fairley Brothers. It's a tale that involves precious bodily fluids ruining a perfectly good hairdo, unexpectedly sweet comedies about Amish bowlers, and the two dumbest guys you're ever likely to meet. On with the show! Franks and Beans, The Farrelly Brothers, Part 1. We begin in 1956 in Cumberland, Rhode Island, with the birth of Peter Farrelly, whose brother Bobby soon followed in 1958. The two saw Airplane in 1980 and were inspired by the sense of madcap anarchy unleashed by the film. Peter described the experience thusly, quote, Seeing it for the first time was like going to a great rock concert, like seeing Led Zeppelin or the Talking Heads. We didn't realize until later that what we'd seen was a very specific kind of comedy that we now call the Zucker Abrams Zucker School, unquote. Around a decade later, Peter and Bobby set out for Hollywood, hoping to get a leg up in the industry writing screenplays. Their first credited work was a spec script for Seinfeld, after which they tried to enter into the feature business. After a suggestion from their agent, they aimed to get their first screenplay about two idiots on a road trip off the ground as directors, and the script attracted the interest of distributor New Line Cinema. The only problem is that nobody they wanted in the lead roles felt the material was up to snuff. Steve Martin? Not interested. Martin Short? Ditto. Nicolas Cage? wanted two million more than New Line could manage. The film ended up being cast with Jeff Daniels, primarily known as a dramatic actor, and Jim Carrey, who had just made the leap to cinematic stardom after years of repertory work on Fox's In Living Color. Expectations were low, but eventually the film made it off the ground and was released in 1994. I'm talking, of course, about Dumb, 
and dumber. Without a doubt, the most intelligent, enlightening motion picture experience of a lifetime. Good day, mate. I laughed till I stopped. A movie filled with actors, scenery, and talking. See it with someone who knows how to get to the theater. Dance to the beat of a different drummer boy. Provocative, compelling, and other big words. I got worms. Movies come and go, but this one's here right now. Dumb and Dumber. Rated PG-13. Starts Friday, December 16th. Talk about making it out of the gate with gusto. The Farrelly's pretty much lucked into Dumb and Dumber and took New Line's moderate faith in the project and sprinted with it. It's hard to think of comedy debuts that are as memorable and funny, where almost every single line lands. The film is not terribly inspiring visually, but in terms of tone and knowing their audience, the Farrelly's delivered as successful a first outing as possible. The elevator pitch is deceptively simple. What if two morons accidentally acquired a briefcase full of cash meant for a kidnapping ransom and set across the country to reunite it with its owner? Along the way, they get into any number of shenanigans with vicious hitman and women on their tail. True to the Zucker-Abrams-Zucker mentality, the characters of Harry and Lloyd, played by Jeff Daniels and Jim Carrey respectively, are the only two people in the film who are in a comedy. Everyone else is an attention-filled kidnapping drama, completely unamused by the utter idiots that are cocking up their best-laid plans. Bobby Farrelly once notoriously declared plots are for pussies, and Dumb and Dumber is the rare kind of comedy that's both gag-based and character-based, where one hand washes the other. Whether or not the actual story matters, the script is always consistent with the lead character's seeming progressive stupidity. They move from wacky incident to wacky incident with the lightest of touches, making decisions that are always on brand. Like we discussed in the Trials of John Landis episode when we touched upon 1996's The Stupids, writing dumb is not nearly as easy as it seems. It seems like something that you can just phone in by just avoiding making the smart choice, but if you don't write stupidity with a modicum of intelligence, the audience will get the impression that the authors of a work didn't put too much thought into their film. You need to toe the line just right to pull it off. The key to Harry and Lloyd is that they don't know that they're stupid. Whenever they make a calamitous decision, they think that they're, to borrow a line from the next film we'll discuss, on the gravy train with biscuit wheels, where one right move can put them on the path to salvation instead of digging even deeper into a hole. Just as important to the equation as writing, smart stupid, is the casting. I don't think anyone was prepared for the ascent of star Jim Carrey that began in February of 1994 with Ace Ventura Pet Detective, carried through the release of The Mask in July, and into Dumb and Dumber in December. It's possibly the greatest year any actor has had in modern times, gradually grossing more domestically with each film before following it up with an outstanding 1995 with the one-two punch of Batman Forever and the Ace Ventura sequel, quickly becoming the first actor in history to take home a $20 million paycheck for one film, 1996's The Cable Guy. Carrie was my hero at the time. Have some sympathy, I was eight, I didn't know any better. I didn't have the chance to see Dumb and Dumber in the theaters, 
as my father still felt burned by taking me to see Ace Ventura, still the most R-rated PG-13 film that was ever released by a mainstream studio. Instead, I saw it on pay-per-view in a motel in early 1995, and it's one of the, kind of, the perfect way to experience this film. It's one of those cornerstone titles that kids discover on VHS, developing into a full-blown obsession, something that just doesn't have the same effect in a theater. Movies like Dumb and Dumber play like secret handshakes, where those who get it and love it have a shared vocabulary, hip to something that nobody else gets. Of course, the film was phenomenally financially successful, so it doesn't really qualify as an underground success, but it feels like something that doesn't have mass appeal, more like something that the select few are tapped into. To this day, I can still quote the film chapter and verse, as can many others, to the point where every viewing becomes like karaoke, singing along poorly to the familiar notes. As I mentioned, the film was a hit, so much so that it inspired a franchise, including a short-lived animated series the following year. God, just... really? A despised prequel with no involvement from the Farrelly's in 2003, an official sequel two decades later, which we'll get to in time. Dumb and Dumber begins the now-familiar Farrelly preoccupations. Wall-to-wall pop songs on the soundtrack, friends and family in bit parts, something that Zucker Abrams and Zucker also have an appreciation for, and scenic New England settings. The only film of theirs in this early period that deviated from those preoccupations, the latter, was their second feature, released two years after Dumb and Dumber, 1996's Kingpin. First, he lost his hand. Then, he lost his pride. You wouldn't happen to have a Phillips head screwdriver, would you? But when the man with the rubber hand meets the Amish kid with the golden arm, Whoa. anything's possible. Do not allow yourself to be corrupted. Nothing can make me stray. From the idiots that brung you dumb and dumber, I will pay you $1 million to sleep with your friend here. Kingpin. Directed by the Farrelly Brothers. Rated PG-13. Where the rest of the Farrelly's movies are at least generated from within, Kingpin is the rare Fairly movie in which the brothers don't share a writing credit, instead working off a script from Mort Nathan and Barry Finero. In essentially making someone else's project a reality, the Fairleys prove themselves to have a certain tone and aesthetic. The sense of humor is not too dissimilar from Dumb and Dumber, and you can tell that you're watching something by the same people with the same interests, but without ever rehashing the previous work. Woody Harrelson stars as Roy Munson, a 1970s championship bowler who hustles on the side, eventually crossing the wrong guys and having his hand inserted into a ball return. Dejected by his loss of a limb that precludes him from participating in the only social activity he was any good at, Roy collapses into alcoholism and hits the skids. Roy's fortunes improve after a chance encounter with a skilled Amish casual bowler Naive, pure Ishmael, played by Randy Quaid, who demonstrates skills that Roy thinks he can financially exploit. Roy then sets about grooming Ishmael for a million-dollar tournament in Reno, Nevada, the city that is to Nevada what bowling is to athletics, only for Ishmael to break his hand at the last second, forcing Roy to have to bowl in the tournament himself. Roy must come to terms with his fall from grace and test his mettle for the first time in decades, 
Facing down the man who may have been responsible for his lost limb, the insidious Ernie McCracken, played by Bill Murray. I've always wondered why Murray hasn't played more villains, because his performance here isn't much more sinister than some of the protagonists he's played, and he's clearly so good at being a slime ball. Kingpin continues the Dumb and Dumber formula of focusing on both gags and character and how one hand washes the other. Characters make decisions that are weighted in their personal experience, without negating a reliance on riotous jokes. But the real success of Kingpin is its heart. It's not kid gloves, it doesn't soften the blow, but like the best Farrelly Brothers movies, there's a conscience deep inside. Though the characters are frequently the butt of jokes, it's clear that the Farrelly's appreciate them and feel empathy for them. To borrow a phrase that I use far too often, I really do, it's a difficult balancing act, being sentimental without being saccharine. But they pull it off. It's often impressive when you take the time to observe just how patently absurd the concept is, teaching an Amish guy to become a bowling champion. The key to a successful sports movie is also channeling what makes a sport visually novel and emotionally dynamic, however silly it is, and Kingpin achieves the desired result. I love bowling about as much as someone who's terrible at it can, and the Farrelly's get what's so alluring about the sport of pot-bellied guys with comb-overs. The games have actual stakes. The audience doesn't want to see Roy fall deeper into desperation, they want to see him rebound and succeed, or at least succeed as much as a failed bowler possibly can. Thanks to cinematographer Mark Irwin, who shot every one of the Farrelly's first five films, there's a warmth to the film visually as well, often a little softly focused, always with warm tones, like a hazy memory of a very specific time and place. The Farrelly's have never been particularly avant-garde with the look of their films, but for broad comedy, their preference for clean shots usually suits them well. Unfortunately, despite their best intentions, expectations for Kingpin were almost insurmountable. After all, the difficult sophomore album is always a challenge, no matter how successful the first album is. When you just came off something that is massively popular, you are shackled to an overwhelming burden. Kingpin failed at the box office, at least compared to Dumb and Dumber, but developed a cult following after its release on home video, spending more time on the top of the VHS charts than it did at the top 10 at the domestic box office, and over time gained a reputation as an underappreciated gem, a well-earned reputation. Two years after the release of Kingpin in 1998, now released from the burden of following up a genuine comedy classic, Peter and Bobby Farrelly set up shop at 20th Century Fox for their follow-up. The expectations were practically zero, but the world was about to be subjected to the future in There's Something About Mary. ...about the way she looks. She's a fox. Mary's a fox. The way she moves. She's a real spark plug. And the way she talks. You want to go upstairs and watch Sports Center? Come on! This isn't fair. ...that drives men crazy. I love Ruby! Would you mind letting the dog out of the bathroom? ...from the directors of Dumb and Dumber and Kingpin. <laughs> There's Something About Mary. Oh! Rated R. Special sneak preview Wednesday. Check newspapers. You don't need to have There's Something About Mary elucidated, do you? Practically everyone and their mother has seen it, and even those who haven't seen it are intensely aware of its largest moments. 
These moments have become the essential texts, the turning point for gross-out comedy, where it transitions from an aspect of movies into an entire subgenre. The watershed, the dam bursting, and of course I'm speaking about the infamous jizz in the hair. Silence of the Lambs got there first, but that's technically not a comedy. Once Spunk is in play, the game is raised, and sadly, Van Wilder is on his way. Scatological tendencies have always been around in the genre, but there's something about Mary puts the Campfire Fart Symphony and Blazing Saddles to shame. I don't think anyone was aware at the time that something seismic had occurred, but it was in fact the case. Here's proof. I was talking to my mother the other day because we're friends and we exchanged the occasional word, and she asked what I was watching, to which I replied, there's something about Mary. Her response was, oh, the one about hair gel? Tell me you spanked the monkey before any big date. I have never, ever wanted to talk about a movie less in my entire life, except for maybe the time we watched Deliverance together. That's just as seared into my consciousness. But that's the thing about this movie. It became acceptable to discuss bodily fluids in polite conversation afterwards. Hell, the moment in which Cameron Diaz applies jizz to her hair was used in the goddamn trailer. That summer had any number of big Hollywood blockbusters, but this was the movie that people couldn't stop talking about. The crowd pleaser that lasted and built over time. One that arrived with absolutely zero buzz. The Farrelly's were coming off Kingpin, which I will reiterate was a disappointment at the time, but ended up walking away with an ungodly amount of cash. It was so successful that practically every major gag was spoiled in the theatrical trailer and television commercials, and it still lasted. While I think Dumb and Dumber is the better overall movie, there's something about Mary represents a serious amount of growth in the Farrelly's as filmmakers. The scene in which Ben Stiller's character accidentally catches his scrotum and penis in his prom tux zipper is composed with a sense of skill and tension of Hitchcockian master proportions. The Farrelly's know exactly how much to allude to and know when to withhold seeing the gruesome aftermath of the zip, playing off the reactions of everyone else in the room before eventually showing the franks and beans for a few seconds at most, instantly weaponizing what plays like a horror movie moment for the men in the audience with sympathy pains from their lady friends. That's not something you can just do. It has to be built. In that moment, the Farrelly's go from being comedy writers who direct movies to being accomplished comedy directors. I know that sounds absurd, to offer such praise for a scene about someone getting their dick caught in their zipper, just as much as it's absurd to talk about the big beating heart in a movie where Woody Harrelson drinks from a pail of bull semen, but it's the truth. The success of There's Something About Mary allows for everything that follows. Even if the Farrelly's never made another profitable movie, they would be allowed to fail upwards for the rest of their careers. And when the laughs in the process are as riotous, who loses in that equation? Next week, we're continuing this deep dive into the filmography of the Fairley Brothers with the return of Jim Carrey into their repertoire, misguided message movies with Gwyneth Paltrow in a fat suit, and even a pair of conjoined twins. Yes, shit is about to get even weirder. Stay tuned.
And that is where we end this episode of The Shirley Chronicles. If you're a fan of the show, $5 gets you access to not just early broadcasts of every episode, but countless hours of bonus content and super fun weekly minisodes every Friday that spin off from the weekly show exclusively at patreon.com slash coolnesschronicles. But before we take off for the week, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. It's Ryan's Recommendations. I've previously discussed my longtime disinterest in musicals, a style of film that I've become more fond of with time, and as I discover more and more of them, my esteem grows. This week's recommendation is one of my favorites so far, Jacques Demy's 1964 film, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Je t'attendrai toute ma vie. Je ne penserai qu'à toi. Reste, ne pars pas, je t'en supplie. Reste mon amour, ce n'est pas encore I wasn't prepared for this film, which is lyrical in a very literal sense. Every single line of dialogue is actually sung, never spoken, and it creates such a feeling of romanticism, rendering something bittersweet and beautiful. Add to this the vivid and glorious candy-colored cinematography, and you have this idealized poem of a film. It was my first Demi picture, and damn if it didn't make me an instant fan. If you typically associate musicals with insubstantial fluff, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg will set your silly ass straight. The film is currently streaming on the Criterion Channel, HBO Max, and Canopy. Support your local library. For more reviews and recommendations, check out my Letterboxd page at letterboxd.com slash coolnesspodcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy what you hear, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your chosen source, locatable as The Coolness Chronicles, and share it with anyone you can, any way you can. This has been the largest and most fulfilling endeavor I've ever seen to completion, and it would be nice to keep making the show until it just isn't fun anymore. This is a 1,000% independent, non-profit podcast, and as such, we are markedly less visible. Every time you guys and gals spread the word, it assures that we can afford to record another day. Have questions or comments? Have I missed anything so far in this series? Contact me on Twitter, at CoolnessPodRyan, Instagram, at The Coolness Chronicles, on Podchaser, or on our Facebook page, and keep on the lookout for updates. Also check out the other podcast that I co-host, Reels of Justice, where every week we put a movie on trial to determine if it's guilty or innocent of being a bad movie. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you find fine, upstanding, well-groomed podcasts. Special thanks to the amazing Lacey Barker for all of her wonderful artwork, Bill Sherm for all of our wonderful music, and special, special thanks to our equally amazing patrons. Kathleen D., Isabel T., Bobby L., Michael A., Ian C., T-Flax, Ian M., Kitty K., Kelly B., The Vern, Michael H., Mary M., Bill M., Christopher H., Christopher J., Tracy R., and Jenny R. Until next time, do what you love, don't be a dick, and take care.
storm. that's the end.